Let me go ahead and pray as the children are dismissed to Children's Church. Um, let me open our time in the scripture together with prayer. Father God, we thank you for the loving kindness upon us to which none of us deserve. But we're reminded yet again whether you will be with us in the darkest valley. Father, we know that you are our great shepherd. And we follow you wherever you lead. And Father, this morning we pray, Lord, as we continue our sermon series on our vision for the church over the next seven years, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us see and understand what it is that you see within the church community, what the bride of Christ is meant to look like, to be and act like. Father, we pray that we would be emboldened from the scriptures, that we'd be challenged and humbled from the scriptures this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, we rolled out what will be our vision for the next uh, probably seven years uh, here at Calvary Baptist Church, and that is the, 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 what we're about, what we're seeking to accomplish in this space uh, is to know and love Christ. That was last week's sermon. This week's sermon will be live in community. So these are the things, the visions, the, the handles, if you will, upon which you can grab and say, what is Calvary Baptist Church about? And finally, next week, we'll look at giving glory to God in, in our calling. Giving glory to God in our calling. One of the aims in my series uh, is to show us from the Scripture that the church has never been about merely a building or an event. This doesn't mean that the church doesn't have buildings, or that the church doesn't have events like, like gatherings like we're doing here this morning. Uh, because according to the scripture, if a, if a people never actually get together and there is no preached word, then there is no church. One of the ways the last 20 years of our culture uh, of shifting from this idea that the church can, doesn't have to be about buildings or events or gatherings, but merely simply about people. One, one way that they've shifted too far is to simply say that well, there is no sense of the church getting together at all, but rather the church are individuals, the church are people. And you see, the problem when we, when we drive that to the individual merely, only, and we're left without the community of which God has actually called us to be a part of. The church has never been about a building or an event, but the church is about people, primarily, mainly, firstly. The church is about people. Specifically, it's about the people that God is rescuing and redeeming from all different walks of life. People from all different nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, social upbringing. The church is about God's chosen people whom Christ died for. Therefore, as we are thinking about our vision over the next seven years here, we want to be a people who are driven and focused on other people. We want to be a people who are deeply loving to all peoples, but especially to the people whom God has put around us and in front of us here today, now. If you think that this is a church where you can come week in and week out, and not be deeply involved in the life of those sitting around you. Listen, I love you. This probably is not the church for you. If you're looking for a church where you can sneak in and sneak out the door every Sunday and go unnoticed, listen, that's probably not the church for you. This doesn't mean that we perfectly love 
all the people, or that there won't be times that you sneak in and sneak out and nobody says hello. It doesn't mean that we want to be intentional. We want to be focused. We want to be trying to walk out our life in Christ together. Together. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. As you're opening there, let me, let me give you a little brief background of what's going on in the book of Acts, uh, where our passage is located this morning. Um, in chapters 1 and 2, you have the preparing of the disciples for the witness to Jesus' resurrection, to his burial, his death, his resurrection, uh, the preparation of the disciples in chapters 1 and 2. They're waiting in the upper room for the Spirit that was promised by Christ to come, to descend on them, to embolden them, to give them power. And then Peter preaches after, after the Spirit's given. We see Peter preaching at Pentecost, telling the good news of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man, which shows the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. Again, we have him preaching in the temple square concerning the good news of Christ. And what happens in the early parts of chapter 4 is that all this preaching causes some of the apostles to be brought before the Jewish council, thrown into jail for the good news which they are preaching. They're told to stop, and we see that they boldly declare, we can't do what you say, but only what our God says. And they declared to that council that Christ alone is the one who saves. And then the church then prays for the courage to continue to share the gospel boldly. And that brings us to our text this morning. Look with it at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me. Whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at its feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard of these things. Let me give you the main idea of the sermon this morning, and that is that the church is to be a people who live in community. People who live in community. Now, 
I know when people read this passage specifically in Acts, they get all kinds of feelings and thoughts. We start trying to prepare our arguments for whether Luke is being descriptive of what the church was like, or whether Luke was being prescriptive of what the church should be doing. And this morning, I just want us to, to let the text speak to us before we start speaking to the text. Before we start mentioning things like, yeah, this seems like communism, Pastor. We're saying, I don't have to live like that. Let's just sit this morning in this text and wrestle with it for a bit. Let me give you the roadmap of where we're going. The, the, the church community is a people who believe the gospel. That's point number one. A people who are uni- united and unified. They are a people who are shaped by preaching. And lastly, we'll look at people who value people over possessions. So look at verse 32 with me again. A people who believe the gospel. Point number one. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believe. Stop there. He says the full number of those who believe. Luke is about to tell us how these people A living life. But he wants us to understand, before he starts talking about how they're living life, that these people are living that way because of their beliefs. They are not living this way simply out of mere human willpower or or trying to do better or harder things. No, for Luke, everything that he's about to say is anchored in this point of those who believed. Let's take a look at the church community because Luke gives us uh, insight into the earliest parts of the Christian movement here. Remember, this is very close proximity to everything that Christ has done. The actual burial, death, and resurrection of Christ. And for those of us who have been Christians for some time, we often get kind of like complacent. and We forget about how, how real this actually is. We forget the grandeur and the magnificence of what actually happened at the resurrection. Here was a man who claimed to be able to forgive sins. Claimed that he himself would be paying for the sins of all mankind. And thus he needed to go to Jerusalem and be killed on a cross. His disciples could hardly believe it. They tried to persuade him against it. But Jesus set his face like flint towards the cross and towards Jerusalem when he makes it there. Eventually he's arrested at night brought before Pontius Pilate and condemned to die a criminal's death by being crucified on the cross. When he was crucified, when he was killed, his disciples panicked. They couldn't believe it. The one whom they had trusted, the one whom they had followed for three years, dead. All their hopes, dead. All their ambitions, dead. All of their dreams about a new way of living, a new way of life, were as dead as Jesus was in the tomb. They were afraid. Would the leaders, the Jewish leaders, come to kill them now that they had killed their master? And for three days they lamented and were sorrowful. For three days they were in anguish, wondering, how will we ever move on from this? But that first Sunday morning they received a strange report. The women were saying that Jesus' tomb was empty. And suddenly they began to remember Jesus' words like this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Or destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then wonder of wonders, the miracle appeared before their eyes. They, they seen the risen Christ face to face. Now, you have to understand, this is so 
important for understanding what's going on in Acts. So important. Because Jesus had risen from the grave. This meant that everything else he had said, also true. New life, recreation, a new heart, forgiveness of sins, peace with one another was possible. All of it was true because Jesus was alive. This means everything's changed. Everything. The world they once knew was no more. The ways they used to think were no longer thought. How they used to treat one another, they would no longer continue in. All of the previous baggage, gone. These people believed the gospel. This means that the church community of believers is not a community built upon any other foundation. This is why the church community is categorically different than every other community you can be a part of in all different facets of your life. That's why our vision at Calvary begins with knowing and loving Christ, because if we remove Christ and the cross from our foundation, from our vision, we're left with nothing. If we simply try to get together and do good things, feed homeless people, or you know, take care of homeless people, feed the poor, if we try to eradicate poverty and we leave the cross out of it, we're left with nothing. Nothing. We're not gathered here this morning because we all share the same hobbies. We're not gathered here this morning because we have a great building, though we do. We're not gathered here this morning because we have phenomenal worship, though we do. We're not gathered here this morning because uh, we have a great preacher, which we don't. (laughs) Just being honest. We're gathered here this morning because we believe the gospel. It's, it's, It's the gospel, right? If we're going to be a people doing life together building community, casting vision for the next seven years, then we've got to be a people who believe the gospel. Therefore, this means if you don't believe the gospel, then you're not part of the community. You're not. We want you to be, though. We want you to be. Number two, we see a people who are unified. Look at verse 32 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. You see, the church community is a people who are unified. It's it's who they are. Luke says they they were all of one heart and soul. And what he means here is that in their essence, they they had unity. Like they, They were unified. It's important to note here that they were unified in the one in whom they had believed in. What the early church didn't have was a bunch of people who never disagreed with each other. Rather, the unity which Luke is referring to here is a unity in the gospel. This is what the prophet Ezekiel had prophesied. This is what he says in chapter 11, verse 18. When they come here, there, they will remove from it all detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The church community is a people who are fundamentally unified. Listen, here's what this means for you and I. It means that you and I can have all the differences in the world, such as what color the church walls should be, what style of worship music we should sing, what version of the scriptures we should use. We can have all these differences and much, much more. And we can disagree on a great many of things. And yet, we're still unified. 
We're still unified. This is why Paul argues in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 11 through 22, 21, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, there's no longer Jew or Gentile divides, but only one new man in Christ Jesus. He's reminding the church that their primary starting point is one of unity. This isn't, like, understand, church, this is, unity is not something that we have to work towards. It's something we already have. Fundamentally something we already have. You might say, well, it doesn't feel like we're a unified pastor. It feels like a whole lot of disunity up in here. That doesn't mean we don't have unity. It simply means we're not living in the light of the reality that we do have unity. You see what I'm saying? A church's lack of outward appearance of unity does not mean that the church is not unified. Rather, it means that it's either its members are not really in Christ or that it has some growth it needs to do in walking out the unity which fundamentally exists. This is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 1.13 and he asks the question, is Christ divided? No, of course not. The church community is a people who are unified and have unity. Number three. The church community is a people who are shaped by preaching. One of the themes which emerges in the book of Acts is the primacy uh, in the people of God of the preached word of God. Look at verse uh, 32, uh, 33, sorry. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You see, he, he just said that, that these are the people who believe in Christ. They have unity. He says some other stuff we'll, we'll return to in a minute. But then he says in verse 33 that this, this great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You see, John Calvin says that one of, the great, one of the true marks of the church is this. Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists. Even if it swarms with many faults. Say it again. Wherever we see the word of God purely preached, and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. You see, in Acts chapter 2, Luke says that the early church had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The church community is a people who are shaped by the preached word of the Lord. And this preached word actually changes hearts. This preach word, like, like, we know this, right? For most of us, it was sitting under a sermon where we came to be changed. We couldn't explain it, but it's when the Lord uh, was preached that the Holy Spirit began to convict us of our sins and led us to Jesus and the cross, and there we repented and were made new. But preaching just isn't a means to save us and then leave us on our own to somehow figure it out. I don't know. It's the continual coming and sitting under the word every week. This is what changes us. It's how God intends to shape us and to form us into the image of Christ. Pastor, are you saying sanctification is simply just listening to a lot of sermons and so therefore the one who listens to the most sermons will be the most godly? Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. But it's not less than that. It's not less than that. That's why the weekly gathering of believers in a local context is vitally important. You will be shaped by what you hear. And if you never hear the word preached, what image are you being shaped into? 
The news anchors are trying to shape you into a specific image. Teachers and leaders are trying to shape you into a specific image. Politicians are trying to shape you into a specific image. Listen, Facebook ads are trying to shape you into a specific type of person. What image are you being shaped into, church? Are you being shaped into the image of Christ or to an image of the world? See, the church community is a people who are changed by the preached word. Number four, we'll spend the majority of our time here. A people, the church community is a people who value people over possessions. People over possessions. Look back at verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. A church community is a people who value people over possessions. Hang with me here. Notice what Luke says. He says that they were selling things that belonged to them. As many, he said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Notice this is the heart position of, the, of a true believer. The heart position. It always begins with the heart position. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Number two, that you had the selling of goods. As many as were owners of lands and houses sold them. Number three, they brought it to the apostles. So you have heart position, selling of goods, and brought to the apostles. This actually becomes the, the roadmap for how Luke actually tells the next two events in the story. You see, Barnabas... His heart position was one that he uh, didn't belong. Whatever he had, he, he never claimed it as his own. And he sold it for the good of others. And he brought it to the apostles' feet. A question we should wrestle with in this text. Here it is. What is it that drove ordinary people, people like you and I, to sell their land and sell their houses to give it to the church? I think far too many Christians and commentators alike get hung up on this passage because they look at their lives in real time and they look at church history and they look at the book of Acts and this passage specifically and they struggle with the fact that church history nor our lives seem to measure up with what Luke seems to be saying in this passage. We aren't selling our houses. We aren't selling our lands. And so we end up concluding, well, pastor... I guess this was not something, uh, I guess this was just something early on in the church. Maybe to give it credence to the gospel message, similar perhaps to spiritual gifts in the early church. If we approach this text trying to ask the question, should we do this? We've missed the point entirely. We've missed the point entirely. The question of the text is not how do we apply this to our own lives? Rather, the question of the text is, what drove these ordinary people to live like this? Let me try to take a stab at answering that question. The early church disciples had been so radically transformed by the good news of all that Christ had done for them, and now living with hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, they valued people over possessions. 
And they sought to realize what Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4 said, that there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. The question we should wrestle with this morning is, do we value people over possessions? I'm not saying we should all go sell our houses, sell your lands, move into the parsonage next door, and pull our funds together. But the heartbeat that should undergird this church community is one of such love and such care for one another that we value people over possessions. Let me walk this out practically for you. We should be willing to spend time praying for one another. We should be making time in our schedules to be with one another. We should be watching the young in this church community grow up together with the older people pouring themselves into the next generation. We should be listening with attentive ears to the older in this church community, learning of how God has proved himself faithful year after year in their lives so that we might be encouraged in ours. We should be rejoicing and celebrating life's victories with one another every birthday, every job promotion, every wedding, every anniversary, every win of a sports game. We should be rejoicing and celebrating together. We should be lamenting and weeping life's apparent defeats with one another. Every death, every sickness, every layoff, every divorce, every blow up with one of our children, even though they deserved it, every sin, we should be lamenting and weeping together with. We should be repenting and trusting Christ together with one another. This is what it looks like for a church community to be a people who value people over possessions. You see, living in community means we're not just vertical people. We're not just vertical people, people who merely love God and to hell with everybody else. It's not us. We are people who are horizontal people and vertical people. We deeply love one another, who care about seeing justice in the world in the here and now, and not just when we get to heaven, when we die. As a matter of fact, there's a lawyer who came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's, that's a vertical relationship. But Jesus didn't stop there. He goes on, he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In my house, we, we, we have three rules in our house. I don't know if I've told you all this before, but I'll tell you again if I have. We have three rules for our, the way we parent our, our children. Just three. Makes it super easy for us to remember, super easy for them to remember. And no, no quabbles about what it actually mean. Here they are. I'll give them to you uh, because we try to model it off this. Number one, you're going to honor your mother and father. And the other day, the, the kids got to ask them, like, why do we have to do that? So, which is a great opportunity for their pastor father to explain to them the reason uh, fathers, uh, the, the, the heavenly father has given us earthly mothers and fathers is so we should have some working picture of what the relationship between us and God actually look like. You see, commandment number five in the Old Testament is the same as commandment number one, only with a different father. 
So we tell them, you're going to honor your mother and father. And in the same way, the, the, you know, I, your father, Matt, uh, I obey our heavenly father in the same way that you obey me. Rule number one, honor your mother and father. Rule number two, you're going to treat other people the way that you want to be treated. You see, and, and in these two rules, it, it encapsulates a lot, right? Honor your mother and father so that, so that when I tell my kids to pick up the rooms before bedtime and they say, why? I say, hey, that's, that's a very practical way that you can actually honor your mother and father. Love other people. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated. This is the second great commandment that Jesus gives here. You say, well, Pastor, I thought you said three rules. Yeah, yeah, three rules. This one didn't really fit into any of the first two. It's uh, don't act like you're outside when you're inside. Just to keep them little hooligans from running around tearing our furniture up. So three rules, very simple. Very simple. Modeled after this, the first and great commandment. Love, you, love, the God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's knowing and loving Christ, by the way. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's living in community with one another. Who is my neighbor? Said the person of Jesus. Your neighbors are right here. Look around. So in conclusion, a church community is a people who believe the gospel, a people who are unified, and a people who are shaped by the preaching of God's word, and a people who value people over possessions. All of this flows from the Spirit. You start anywhere else besides Christ and you will not end up where you think you are going. We can be a people like this, by the way. We can be a people who deeply love one another and by God's grace we are. Maybe not perfectly, but fundamentally it's who we are as Christians, as those who are in Christ. This is our story. And our vision over the next seven years will be one of knowing and loving Christ deeply and living in community with one another. In April, mid-April, we're going to launch a a new ministry of the church here called Calvary Communities. Uh, And and Calvary Communities is kind of our take on uh, small group ministry. Uh, This is a way of intentionally designing times where we actually do life together. Because right now, and for the last at least three years that I've been a part of the church, our church is primarily uh, focused simply on the Sunday morning sermon. Which, praise be to God, that's a fantastic thing to be focused on. But if that's all we're focused on for the next seven years, when we will be uh, a people who, who know and love Christ and aren't quite sure how to walk it out and live with one another. And so Calvary Communities is going to be a, a midweek small groups. Uh, and, and here's my vision for it, to see multiple Calvary Communities throughout Marysville, proper Marysville, rural, Marion, royal, and, uh, rural, and uh, Marion proper. Uh, because that's the demographics of our, of our church makeup. And here's the idea. that In mid-April, uh, uh, Julie and I will launch the first Calvary Communities in our home during the week. Now, we have about, on average, 60 to 70 people here. Uh, I don't know if you've been inside my house. It's not very conducive for 60 or 70 people. But if we're going to do this, what I'm talking about here, if we're going to know and love each other deeply and, and do life together, then it can't just be one community. But it needs to be multiple. Which means we need you. You who are willing to host and to open up your home, to invite people into your life. We also need leaders. 
Leaders who will open up the scriptures and walk people through it life together. Next week, we're going to look at a, a giving glory to God in our calling. We'll, we'll put out a, a bigger call for your life in ministry, not necessarily pastoral ministry, but, but, but you know that my job is not ministry, right? You guys realize this. According to the scriptures, my job is to merely train you for the work of the ministry. That's what the Bible says. And so that's what next week, we're going to look at that next week. But, but let me just leave you with this. Merely having a church that just meets on Sunday morning and not intra-week, small groups, life-on-life discussion, talking about the pain uh, that, that we have and we struggle with because, because I'm up here talking to you, you're not talking to me. You understand that? There's a, there's a great, uh, if, if we only focus on this for the next seven years and not focus on the horizontal aspect of life togetherness, we will be a church stunted malformed, not properly fitting and recording with what we're actually called to be. That's why I'm so excited to launch Calvary Communities uh, with you. More information coming in the next week. This is the vision. This is where we're going. This is why I'm saying, if, like, if you're not down for this, right? And this is, this is why like, it's not just going to be me and my house all by myself. There's commitment on your part. Because community is not, not, not created without commitment uh, one another, from one another. And this is what the scriptures would actually have for us, that in this, in doing life this way, then we will be more fully living out the life Christ actually has for us. So it's what we've been praying for over the last year and a half, uh, the two years, Julie and I. Uh, we're excited to do it. Uh, and excited to, to, to walk alongside all of you and to, you guys to walk alongside us. Uh, so one of my favorite parts of the scriptures, and this is, I'm off notes at this point, um, is Galatians chapter 1 or 2 where Paul confronts Peter. You guys remember this? Peter's over there with the Judaizers pretending that he doesn't see the non-Jews. What's, what's Paul do? I remember he says, I confronted him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. That's beautiful. This is Peter he's talking about. Paul, how do you reckon that with Romans chapter 8 where you say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And he says, Peter, he stood condemned in that moment. This is the pastor of pastors, the leader of leaders, Peter, the rock upon which the church would be built. And Paul says, yeah, he stood condemned. He was an idiot. Listen, that's what life on life looks like. It's people getting in each other's faces and saying, I love you, but you're wrong. Well, let me pray for you. Well, let us weep together. Well, let us help you out in this moment of need that you have. Will you help me out in, in our moment of need? Listen, that's beautiful. No other community in the world exists like this. None except the church. So would you pray over the next month, month and a half, what your part would be in this new ministry of our church, this new vision of our church, getting back to the scriptures and understand what we're actually supposed to be about. Pray about it. Pray about it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, Lord, we see the, the ideal picture of what the church 
should be here. The full number of all those who believed were of one heart and soul. They gave away their personal possessions, did not counting them for their own, but gave them up for the good of other people around them in need. Father, there's something attractive about this kind of model for church. And though we'll never attain it perfectly, it's already ours in Christ. And so I pray you help us walk out this life in Christ together that you have for us. Lord, we want to be a people who know and love Christ deeply. And we want to be a people who live in community, intentional community together with one another, sharing where we've fallen, where we've sinned, where we need to repent, calling other people to do the same. We want to be a people who who give glory to you whether we eat or drink. We do it all for the glory of you, Father. And so I pray that you would press this vision into us. I pray that your word would speak volumes to us, that we would be a people who believe the gospel, a people who are unified, a people who are changed by the preached word of the gospel and the people who value people over possessions. I pray you help us with all these. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.